Hello, wine world. Thaddeus Bugs with the Minority Wine Report and the podcast Wine in Black and White. I'm here in beautiful Cape Town, South Africa. This is uh, my third trip here. It's one of my top five cities in the whole world. And I have the privilege to be here in the, I think it's the city of Hermanus, but the little area called uh, Hamel in Arden. Arden? Himmel and Arda. Himmel and Arda, um, which is, I, I, I believe, referred to as heaven on earth, correct? Heaven and earth. Heaven That's, and earth. Yes. Yeah, my bad. Heaven no, and earth. So, uh, I'm talking to uh, Anthony Hamilton of Hamilton Russell, and he owns the property with his beautiful wife, Olive, and he's going to tell us a little bit about this historic property and how all of this came to be because it's in such a beautiful place on earth, Anthony. And we're also smoking Cuban cigars while we're talking too, which how can it get any, even better? We're drinking his uh, Pinot Noir out of Magnums 2017. Anthony, go. That is, it's such a treat to have you here. And we've seen a bit of you over Cape Wine. And of course, in Fort Lauderdale in Florida and that beautiful wine store. Uh, the story of us here is one to some extent of pioneering. Uh, my father in the mid 70s, when this was a very impoverished area, purchased an un unutilized farm and decided to plant vineyards. And that experiment, what he planted, threw up Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as something extraordinary and different in a New World context. It was some of the first Pinot Noir ever planted on clay contents the same as the Cote de Nuit Burgundy. We're 1,500 meters from the cold South Atlantic Ocean. So even though you might think of South Africa as a warm and dry place, we're actually fairly cool and wet. And the Pinot and Chardonnay set a tone internationally for New World Pinot and Chardonnay at the time. <clears throat> I took over the business 31 years ago purchased it from the family in 1994. Is that your family you're referring to? Yes, okay. my father. Mm -hmm. So I'm second generation mm -hmm. and uh, I focused the business on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay only. And we now sell in 69 countries. The US is... Uh, you're going a little fast for me. Well, yeah. you, you have to have some type of mindset to when you looked at the property you purchased, and you have to have a mindset to say, this is where I want to grow Pinot Noir. What gave you the understanding that you can grow world-class Chardonnay and Pinot Noir here? It was already being done, admittedly on a very small scale. Okay. And I just had to choose between Cabernet, Merlot, Gewurz, Traminus, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, etc., mm -hmm. and say, this is what this property wants to do beautifully. I'm only going to do that and I'm going to do it for the world. I'm not going to try and be something for everybody in the small market of South Africa. I'm going to try and do only what we do best for the whole world. Okay, so and just interjecting a little bit. Okay, so at that point, where was the South African wine market at at that point when you was interjecting <laughs> you want to do this for the world? You, well, know, it, you understand it, what I'm saying, right? I do. Like a lot of young South Africans in the mid-1980s, we could see the country was on a hiding to nothing under apartheid. It was just peaking, getting more oppressive, 
it was um, repressive, not just oppressive. And a lot of us left the country and we went to build our lives and our careers elsewhere. I went to the UK, did a business degree in America, worked for American companies, Bain & Company, Morgan Stanley. Yes. And when Mandela was released, a lot of us who were overseas and homesick and had grown up loving this country, but for reasons other than the governance, felt that there was a future that we could come back and get a, be a part of. So I returned in 1991 and I took over a small family business, a passion project to my fa father's um, and basically built it. And the opportunity to build it was purely a function of the world markets opening up to South African wine, which prior to Mandela's release, we had placed sanctions everywhere. We had to sell something of everything to a small local market. The moment he was released, suddenly the whole world opened us up to us. That was the opportunity I pursued. Okay. So it opened up to you and you began uh, ownership of the farm. And I guess you evaluated the farm and decided that you wanted to, do, to go in a certain direction. Correct. And to me, rather than be something for everyone in a small local market, I thought, let's just do what we do best for the whole world. And tasting the wines made on Hamilton Russell Vineyards at that time, 11 different wines. Okay. I tasted them and knew that the success stories were the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay. So it was relatively easy for me to decide to focus on those two and to grow those and to stop doing all the rest. Okay. So eventually, um, did you start out with the same amount of land that you have now or you, have you progressed and bought more land over the course of time? The joy and beauty of Hamilton Russell Vineyards to me is the expression of a single property in a single site. So it would lose meaning if I added, added and added to that particular mm -hmm. site. But what I did do is I founded two other businesses. Southern Right in 1994, First Vintage 95, Ashbourne in 1996, First Vintage in 2001. So I would rather have three different properties with one red wine and one white wine each than one property with a whole host of different things um, and losing focus. So we have three contiguous properties doing one red and one white each, rather than one property doing everything that that people want. Very good. Okay, so as we progress, and I believe you started, was it 1991, you bought the property? I bought it in 94, started in 91. Okay, Correct. so, and then you came up with the idea, or maybe someone else did, of kind of designating certain parts of this area uh, in a sense how it is in Burgundy in a sense where you can make certain Pinot Noir Chardonnays in certain places how did you where did that concept come from or was it already there um, I think I developed the area I was mm -hmm. the only one making wine here when I took over in 91 yes <clears throat> and then we had a succession of ex-wine makers and other people moving into the area based on our demonstrated success with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay here. People came in to make Pinot and Chardonnay. And eventually we needed to create some form and structure behind that. So I was instrumental in the creation of three different appellations to take our immediate area, not massive at the
the moment only 370 hectares of, of vines. Yeah. Uh, to, to create three, you would think of them in American terms as ABAs, but yes, here they're called wine wards mm -hmm. and the smallest unit of appellation. We created three of those to specialize in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, each one different in a beautiful way in our immediate area with 22 producers and growing. Does each one have a different climate or the climate is basically the same? I would say the, the meso climate is very similar in all of them. Mm -hmm. The soils change okay. and the altitude changes, the aspects change to an extent. But the principal thing driving the difference in the wines from our three small units of appellation within our immediate area, the Himalanada, heaven and earth, would be soil. Okay, and uh, uh, why don't you speak to the different soil types that, and maybe if you have a favorite one out of the three, I don't know. Yes, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm clearly biased. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, but, uh, uh, we have a little ashtray, I don't want to... We have an ashtray, okay. right? Well, you have ashtrays everywhere. This is the most beautiful, it, it, isn't that one of us, an old one from a laundry in Johannesburg, oh, probably from the 1930s. Probably made out of copper or something it's, it's like that? It's pure copper, okay. and it's punched out of that. So okay, that's just, just for you guys out there in the wine world <laughs> listening, this guy, he has an incredible array of ashtrays. And apparently he has a, uh, a smoking room where you could probably smoke anywhere in his house, which a lot of people in America is not used to that. But this is because this is how he could do whatever he wants to do. But very good. So let's we're gonna we're gonna just delve into the. I think there's three or four different major soil types that yes. within this area, and how Pinot Noir and Chardonnay reacts to to the different ones. Okay. Yes. Well, the first thing is. The soil that we have on this property had previously never been planted to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Not was, there, was there a reason? There was a reason. It was sheep and wheat farming soil. It was difficult to prepare. You needed heavy equipment. It's acidic, it's shallow, it's very marginal. The yields are very low. And in an industry that thrived on high yields to be economically viable because the, price, the wine prices were never high, this was just a pure experiment on my father's side. He didn't even think about the soil. It was not something in the 70s people thought about. They thought about temperature and latitude. And we lucked into planting this soil type to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay amongst many other things. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay immediately leapt to the fore as wines of great excitement. So my job purely was to listen to what our terroir was saying and to stop doing what it didn't want to do and yes. to do more of what it did want to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I, th I think that you had probably some education and some thoughts, uh, maybe different soil types. Go ahead and, uh, uh, I mean, different soil types that's in Burgundy yes. and in different places where where, where the Pinot and Chard grow yes. reasonably well. So what are the three major soil types you're dealing with here? Well, the... we have incredibly clay-rich shale-derived soils that were laid down 400 million years ago under a shallow sea, thrown onto the surface 330 million years ago, uh, a very long time. Some of the oldest soils in the world of wine. If you move higher up our valley, you have decomposed granite. The, the, the top two layers or the three layers have been washed off. <clears throat> You've almost got from the ground up, the bedrock, the most ancient soils, granite which is decomposed so think of 
us maybe being Jebre Shamatan with very, very heavy clay. Mm -hmm. And think of the upper Himalayan Valley more like the granites that you get in Krugojale. So you get a, a more aromatic, lifted fruit profile, softer, easier, rounder, yeah. very popular and pretty and beautiful, but different. Mm -hmm. And then in our area, as you leave our valley and just slip into the next river valley, you're back on clay, but it's got something called argillaceous sandstone on top of the clay in places. And you have an ever so, so lightly uh, lighter soil structure and a little bit more fruit definition and a tiny bit less of that dark structural spice that is common to our specific appellation, Himalanada Valley. So what's the beauty of clay? Does it retain water? It allows the, the roots to go deeper into the soil? Or what's the beauty of that? Yeah. Well, actually, it doesn't allow the roots to go deeper into the soil. Okay. We find it's so solid, you could make pots and tiles out of it, you know, 30 or 40 centimeters down. Mm -hmm. We prepare it to a meter depth. Mm -hmm. And the roots that do penetrate into the clay proper with the cracks that form in yeah. summer, get crimped off as the clay expands with the winter rains. So it's not a deep soil. Mm -hmm. Burgundy is not that deep in their heavy clay soils. You hit, you hit bedrock. Um, it's more about the high internal surface area of the soils. Clay is a, such a fine grained particle that you get this incredibly high internal surface area of your soils, which gives you the opportunity for cation exchange. And what that does to the final wines, who knows? It's something mystical, but it does seem to create in Pinot Noir something that goes beyond the simplicity of this thin-skinned, light-colored grape and creates a degree of structural presence, spice and darkness, and almost a more intellectual style. And I think we talked about this maybe a little earlier. Um, it is the like the saline, the salinity aspect. Is it something kind of unique to this area in a sense? Well, I was very interested to hear you observe that about our wines. Mm -hmm. It's been commented on by many fine palates, but I would argue it's nothing to do with proximity to the sea, mm -hmm. everything to do with the soil. But we do get saline, saline characters are a form of umami. We get a lot of umami in our wines. We get a lot of spice and structure. What we do not get is that dramatic forward fruit that you would experience in Russian River, parts of Sonoma, Oregon, and perhaps even in Southern California where the wines are much bolder and more fuller. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a unique expression of the grape Pinot Noir with much more aesthetic analogies in Burgundy than in other New World areas. Okay, so as you talk to different um, importers and places you want your wine all around the world, what's some of the challenges that you have to deal with in trying to sell, um, you know, Hamilton Russell, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir to the world? Um, they've been enormous. Um, if, if I was American, yeah. I would be just so, just so you know, yeah. I, I'm in America. I try to find your wines everywhere, and wherever I find them at, I think it's the biggest bargain in the whole world. I'm like, just give me a case, dude. Let's, let's not even talk about it anymore. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. it's like you're almost giving it away. Well, there's an element of pride in being great value. Yeah. 
but there's an element of disgrace as a businessman and not getting what is due to your wife. And, 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 and tell me why that, <laughs> no, tell me why that is in, in, yeah. in this, it's, I think I it's know, a, but. It's a very pertinent subject for our whole industry, not just yeah. us. Okay. And one of the reasons is, let's take Chardonnay, for example, of our four and a half million cases produced here, only 10% are sold in South Africa, for the simple reason that we have the tiniest of least capitalized markets that you can imagine. You can look at the people prepared to spend what we charge here in South Africa on wine. If the, someone said there are only 800 of them, I, I would argue maybe even 10,000. Okay. And you go to Houston with 10 million people, yeah. and of that 10 million people, there'd be 1 million that are buying wines, maybe at our price point. Absolutely. And that's just Houston, and then there's all of America. Yes. So we don't have that support of this incredibly interested local market driving our prices up. So we are not able to support that pricing level internationally. If I'm a Californian, like me. If I was in California or Sonoma or somewhere like that, Russian River, I would sit on the farm. People would be banging on the door and my wine would be $150 a bottle. Oh, easily, and, easily. And yeah. I'd have a waiting list for my... For, Your you know, peanut would be on like that exclusive list like Occidental, Kistler, uh, Peter Michael, and, and, so, and Marcuson and so on. You know what I'm saying? I, I agree. That's why we love America so much. Okay. But, um, but anyway, but, but that's the challenges you have trying massive, to get it out of. Is it, is it due to the export? But you, are you your own exporter now, right? Or no? Well, we export to you 69 ex countries. Yeah. Okay. We sell to far more countries than any other, possibly other than people like Opus One yeah. and, and Gallo, yeah. maybe. Yeah. But we, we export to more countries than most. We own more Michelin star restaurants than just about any other American property yes. internationally. Uh -huh. Because we have to be, okay. because we do not have the base market to just soak it up easily at high price. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I love about South Africa is we really, really have to work a lot harder to get our wine sold and to get our wine sold at a price that makes enough return to be profitable. I don't know if I should talk about this, but this is a podcast, so we can talk about anything goes. <laughs> so, uh, a good friend of mine is Brevere Rice. Yes, he's a wonderful and, man. And he has this Eden Shin. Yes. Which I think it's in my top it's two or three Shins in the world. That's fantastic. But <laughs> in order, I'm not going to say who, whoever's import is, but they said if he brings it into the U.S., he has to sell it like at $50. I said, Brevere, you're giving that away, though. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. There's a, a perception internationally mm -hmm. about where the best South African wine should sell at. Oh. It's a little like the first Chinese wines to get into America, the first Greek yeah. wines to get into America. I don't think Chinese wines are yeah. making the road, wrong roads in America. But it's, anyway, okay, that's another conversation. Fully agree with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But um, over $50 is a tiny market within the US for South African wine. When really, in an American, if we look at our peer group around the world, we should be at the $100 mark. Oh, of course. Would your top be at one? Totally. Yes. And, and we simply aren't. It's this country of origin discount, which has its roots in the fact that we have this tiny, undercapitalized market with all of us chasing the same 10,000 consumers. And if, if, it was, if we were in America, it would be a fundamentally different ballgame. You couldn't get this wine out of the winery. You probably would sell out 
at the winery level. You know what I'm saying? Because you'd have a wine club that it'd be in such demand, you'd have people on the waiting list waiting for it. So you really wouldn't have a lot for a lot of people. Correct. And do you know what? There's a side of me that loves the way we have to do it mm-hmm. because we have to engage the entire world. Yes. Excuse, okay. An excuse to travel. Okay. An excuse to engage. That's, that's um, another way of looking at it. Yeah. How would I have met you in Florida in yeah. your wine shop? Yeah. <laughs> but I but I've been drinking your wine for seven several years. Well, and I, I always that. knew well I only knew that you was located in, in uh, Walker Bay. Mm. I didn't understand the other sub appellations and different things like that. that. So I gotta get down there, I gotta get down there. This guy's making <laughs> really good juice. That's my hashtag on the social media is good juice, but yeah. you are. So you're making mainly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and I did taste your Pinotage. That's from another winery. Yes. Uh, and the name of that winery again? Ashbourne. Ashbourne. Yes. And that's another baby that was born out of your creation. Yes. Yes. And you did that because? I did it because as a South African, I had to work with Pinotage. If I was Italian and the world was saying, we want Cabernet and we want Chardonnay, but I'm based in Italy and I've got Nebbiolo and I've got you know, um, whatever uh, great, interesting white varietals come out of Italy. Mm-hmm. It yeah. would be a great pity if I said I'm going to be so market driven that I'm only going to do what the world wants and not what does well where I am. I understand. And so for me, it was a sense of duty as a wine producer, South African wine producer, to upgrade our one unique contribution to the world of wine. So I'm going to go on record to say that. I've tasted at least 20 different Pinotage this week, and I think that Pinotage in South Africa and the way they're currently making Pinotage, it's a credit to the winemakers, but the problem that American has had with Pinotage, that early on, there were some really bad Pinotage that went to America, and that was the number one mistake, and a lot of Americans, they don't forget, they, they're thinking this burnt tire, uh, you know, aspect of it. It was it was low quality, but after right. me meeting with uh, Aubrey over at Canumco yes. and uh, Sebastian and those guys, they said the penalties is on the guys that's making it. It's not on the grape varietal because the grape varietal can be exceptionally good. Yes. And I've tasted some exceptionally good penalties along with yours. But Thank you. I don't know how you guys are going to get America back in favor with Pinotage. It's it's going to be a tough road for you guys to it's, do that. You're absolutely right. Now, you're an incredibly wine-educated consumer and authority. Most Americans do not know enough about Pinotage to have a prejudice because they haven't even got around to tasting the bad ones. Yes. So they look, at, good point they look at what's in their glass and they say, do I like that wine or not? And when we go over and show our Southern Right Pinotage and our Ashbourne Pinotage, the enthusiasm because of the tannin structure, ability to take charred meats with the tannins balancing and matching, as you would expect from a young Nebbiolo. Um, It's just so logical for a whole eating style for America that we found this incredible enthusiasm for our wine there. The more people know about the variety in general, the more critical they become because they've had bad Pinotage. Now, I've had bad South African Merlot, I've had bad South African Cabernet, I've had bad South African Syrah. And all the criticisms that are laid on poor old Pinotage apply to every other South African red grape. It's not the grape, 
it's where it's grown, it's the aesthetic direction that has been chosen, it's not the grape. And that's what we've tried to prove for the last 31 years. Okay, so as we're gonna uh, kind of close up and a couple more questions. Okay, from your perspective, um, and I'm gonna ask this on two different levels. Where do you see uh, Hamilton Russell uh, what's the vision for the next five years? Well, this is the sad thing. We fall into this category of classic. And... Um, no, I'm good. You're good. Um, there was a time when, you know, if you didn't have a beard and hung upside down and inoculated your own wine with a strain on your beard or, you know, did it in Amphora or 100% whole bunch or you, you picked it full moon and barked. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the wine's not interesting. So we've been doing now for 42 years the same thing. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay on this beautiful site close to the South Atlantic Ocean on the southern tip of the African continent. And the great thing is consumers of the world are starting to re-appreciate the classic producers. Mm-hmm. And we have that. So. I, this is a precursor to me saying that what we're going to be doing in five years is exactly what we're doing today, but with hundreds of small little attempts to refine and enhance and beautify what we do. We invest heavily every year in not just clones, in agricultural strategy from, you know, not quite biodynamic, but moving in that direction to redesign of the cellar to tailor-made barrels from our top French Cooper just to enhance what we have been doing for 41 years to a greater degree. Okay, so you mentioned clones and I meant to get into it. it, What's some of your favorite clones that you're putting, that's making up of the Pinot? Well, we were the first by four years in the country to work with Dijon clones from France. Mm -hmm. I believe we were ahead of Central Otago, Martinborough. I actually um, love Central Otago. And I do. I, yes. You probably yeah. do too, yeah. I do. And I love Martinborough mm-hmm. okay. even mm-hmm. more. Oh, <laughs> okay. But, but Oregon, we were ahead of them working with Dijon clones. So because we're South African, we're not behind. We've been doing this for a very long time. Yes, 10 years after David Lett and Dick Ponzi yes. in Oregon, mm-hmm. but not far off. And they were working with Bardensville and some old heritage clones. Mm-hmm. We were amongst the first with clones. And we've done it for so long, we've developed preferences for our specific property and a right mix and balance and percentage of the four major Dijon clones, waiting for the fifth of them, 943. Mm-hmm. But we are very 115, 113, 667 weighted. Mm-hmm. We've done years of 777, doesn't work so well yeah. here. Okay. But it's, it's not the be all and end all, but it does make it, has a huge impact on the wine style ultimately is the, that percentage mix of those clones. Okay, so we didn't speak of this, but I don't like to assume because, you know, I'm a, as a former FBI agent of 22 years, usually <laughs> I only ask questions that I know the answers to. Or, that's or, a, that's or, or you give works. someone that's a, but, uh, but a I black eye if they're not telling you what you want to hear. Usually you get indicted. <laughs> so, I'd uh, rather have yeah, a black eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's better than being indicted. Because you could ask Martha Stewart about that. You know, 
Actually, they went into the interview with Martha Stewart without any intention just to get information, and she lied. So they, and they, they didn't even, they didn't even, she did not even get indicted on what she, what they wanted to ask her about. They indicted her online to an FBI agent, which is, you know, it's a, it's a thousand and one count. So they get, it's usually five years. They gave her a year and a half. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, you're not, I'm not giving a lie to right I promise no. you. No, uh, no. <laughs> I'm losing trade. I had a, I had a great <laughs> question for you. Okay, so. It'll come back to me, but yeah. just mention briefly about your uh, project that you have going on in Oregon. Well, we love America. I always believed it was the future for us financially. I said we'll make our name in England and our money in America. And as it's turned out, we kind of made our name in America <laughs> and our money. Well, it's tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a big country. Exactly. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. we sell in 42 of the states, which okay. we're very proud of. Mm -hmm. Um, we have, I've traveled there at least once or twice a year for 31 years now. Mm -hmm. okay. And um, my wife will have gone three times this year. Mm -hmm. So what a wonderful country. And um, not just the American people, but the, the sheer depth and uh, of, of the, uh, the, the scale of the population, the enthusiasm for wine. The sophistication that's developed there in terms of wine consumption. Mm -hmm. Everyone said your style doesn't fit America. You're not ripe enough. You're not juicy enough. Americans like big, bold wines. But I can tell you that the American wine enthusiasts have such a, a well-attuned European aesthetic palate that our wine style fits perfectly. So we love it. And we thought that if we're going to do something in the Northern Hemisphere, we loved what was happening in Oregon. I started visiting there in 1993. And the difference between 93 and today is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. If you put 600 Americans in the same place, doing the same thing, with their capitalization and their resources and their ambition, quality has to go up. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and Oregon, to me... Outside Burgundy, Oregon is making some of the very best Pinot and Chardonnay in the world. And we wanted to be a part of it. So we, we buy grapes, we rent cellar space, our winemaker goes over once a year, and we're five years in. And it's been one of the most rewarding projects we've been involved in. I would love to start reviewing some of your Oregon wines, because I go there like once a year, because I'm, I'm pretty close to the United States. So mm. in, in, in kind of rounding out and closing out the interview, I know I asked you, and you spoke to about your goals for uh, for Hamilton Russell Winery, but what about South Africa? Where is the South Africa wine industry, in your opinion, is going to be in the next five years or so? Yeah. Well, it's a it's a big question mark. We have, like everyone in our industry, we face we gamble with nature on a massive scale. Um, we face massive economic risk exchange rates, things like that. Less so in America, incredibly more so in South Africa. We have exchange rate risk in South Africa. If the dollar gets weak or the pound gets weak, our exports suddenly become less profitable even if we don't change our business practices. And that happened post 2008 on a massive scale. It's very difficult. Our real interest rates are incredibly high. We have significant political risk from point of who owns the land, land redistribution, massive issues um, it's seen as a very privileged white driven industry and it's a target and even though we're amazing employers we're pushing skills down the line we're doing our best to bring the country forward 
we are a flag-waving, white-privileged type of industry. Yes. And we could be a target of political retribution. So that's another risk we face. So it's a very, very tough industry. But I don't think that image applies to you from what I've heard from other people. It, it applies image-wise, but when you scratch a little bit and you look below the surface, yeah. you can see you it's do, very different. Yeah, you do. And, and yes. quite honestly, that applies to an awful lot of the South African wine industry, okay. but it's not the image it has, but it's the reality it the has. Reality. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I, I think we're conservationists at heart. We skills developers at heart, we're employers at heart, we're skills building at heart as an industry. But where we're going is going to depend on a couple of things. And on my computer just behind you is an email that I'm sending out where I want to encourage the government to allow the subdivision of certain viticultural farms. If you're in Burgundy, and you, a young winemaker wanting to get involved, you can buy two rows of vines. Yeah. In this country, you have to buy the whole farm. You, you cannot get into the industry without buying the entire property because they have a subdivision law. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's nuts. Yeah. So the young In guys, Champagne, Burgundy, yeah, that's how everywhere. they survive. Everybody's got a little hector here, yes. a little hector here, a little there hector we go. here. Yeah. Not in this country. <laughs> this country, you cannot get into the wine industry with buying the whole whatever. But who made that decision? The decision was made by the agricultural oh. minister at the yeah. time that said, if you get too small, you become unviable agriculturally without any understanding of the wine industry. So if you're sheep and wheat farmer or you're raising cattle mm -hmm. and you get to 100 hectares instead of like 300, mm -hmm. you get to a point maybe where you're not viable. Okay. So they were fighting subdivision massively and the rules still are stuck in that period of time. I want them changed. So a young winemaker, like an Evan Sardi, who's great, mm -hmm. instead of buying his grapes from his old vine vineyards, he can buy the old vine vineyard because that farmer selling them to him He's running out of money. Yeah. He's barely viable. You, you're, you're doing him a favor. He's barely viable. Mm -hmm. And if you can say, here's a, a slug of capital for you, mm -hmm. give me the vineyard. Yeah. You keep your farm, you live in your house, you still have it, but you're selling me the vineyard. Or you're selling me three rows of the vineyard and you're selling the other guy another three rows of the vineyard. It would transform this industry. And I want that legislation to change. If it changes, it's going to mean a lower entry cost for our most adventurous and attuned winemakers and long-term security, a balance sheet to borrow against for growth, all those things. So I'm, I've thrown that idea out for the last five or six years, no traction, I'm working hard on it right now. And you're probably familiar with a guy in uh, Napa Valley named uh, Andy Beckstocker. He's the pimp in Napa Valley, dude. I mean, he made a living on this. Well, I, I googled Andy Beckstaffer <laughs> yeah. for my email, yeah. okay, because I know his formula for what yeah. you should oh, pay for grapes. Absolutely. Look, you got a hundred dollar cab, you pay ten thousand dollars a ton. Exactly. And yeah. Nobody in this country does that. Yeah, but, every, but everybody's eating because of the yeah. people know that he's growing really yeah. quality grapes. Yeah. The grapes are outstanding. You're going to get a quality cab. And he's, he's amazing. Gonna, yeah, he's going to tell you you have to charge yeah. probably $150 a bottle minimum, you know, to sell it in yeah. America buys it. So, no, I think that's very good. Well, the, 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 the thing when I Googled Andy Beckstoffer, <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that came up is, Andy Beckstoffer, what is he worth? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's man. done well out of and, selling grapes. Oh. 
More power to him because that's the value add. That's all he does is sell grapes. That's the value add. I know, but he's he's, he's similar (laughs) to a lot of other people that have made a living off of, but he's a really quality farmer. The the person that's buying the grape, they'll walk the farm and say, Andy, I need you to do this, this, and this. And he does exactly what they need, and he delivers a quality product at the end of the day. We want that for South yeah, Africa. I think that would be a people need to get paid those prices, and they're not paying a Bereen, who you mm-hmm. met in yeah, lunch. Yeah, she is the first person to pay 20, 22 or twenty-five thousand rand a ton for mm-hmm. Pinot Noir mm-hmm. in the country. Oh wow, yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, and no, her wine is selling person. for yeah. five hundred fifty-six hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so she should, on Andy Bextorfer's formula, be paying even more. Even more, exactly. But yeah. people are buying Pinot Noir for ten thousand rand a ton. Mm-hmm. What is the incentive for the farmer? So by this way, the farmer that's struggling can sell his piece of land. He can sell a few rows here and a few rows there. The small guys entering the industry can own land. They can borrow against it, and that will transform the industry. But I believe it's great times for South African wine. You understand the value. No, I, I, oh, the value. Is, it, well, right now your wines are <laughs> the quality is undervalued. Yes. Okay. So and I the, feel ashamed of that. I should no, feel proud, no, 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 but I feel ashamed. What America? Well, Americans should feel the same ashamed, but they don't. They'll, they'll take the undervalued price. So I know what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Okay. So Hamilton, Russ. Mm. Uh, no, it's Russell Ham- Hamilton. Hamilton Ru- Russell. Hamilton yes. Russell. Mm. Okay, so in in that name, what does that name mean to you? Well, the name means an obligation to deliver high quality. It's always stood for the best of the best, right from day one. Mm-hmm. And what I love about putting my own family name mm-hmm. on the label exactly. is a I can't sell it easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not what I want to do. Okay. I've been offered so much for this property so many times, okay. and it's not about that. Yeah. It's a. Sh- you mean like I big conglomerates that come yeah. through want to just buy everything like they want to do everywhere? Dubai world yeah. wanted to buy us, but oh, you know yeah. we've had people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, your friend in Burgundy. Oh yeah, JCB. <laughs> JCB. <laughs> so uh, it's. A is not for sale. It's, it's, it's a little bit, and this is a terrible analogy, but because my wife doesn't belong to me and she can spend time with anyone she wants. But if someone comes and says, you've got a particularly beautiful wife, how much for her? You know, you don't say, okay, starting price. You say, exactly. go away. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a bit like that. It's so emotional. But Hamilton Russell means to me, it's a family name, you know, that goes way back. It means my whole reputation, my whole life, my whole sense of being is linked to what we deliver. And it's reputation for just the best of the best has to remain. If there's some slight hiccup in that, I feel it deeply emotionally. It's not financial. It's emotional. (laughs) So thank you for the interview, Anthony. I really enjoyed it. Love your wife, uh, Olive. Um, Incredible. uh, lunch today and the property is incredible and hopefully uh, we'll do it again. I like to review your wines in Oregon at some point and uh, we'll come back and again. see you maybe in a couple of years and see the yeah. progress has been made at Hamilton Russell. Cheers. Thank really you. Good yeah, thank you <laughs> very much. I've got to get... Can you just... No, we're still going. Okay, we're still here with Anthony. <laughs> He's going to talk about these stones that come off of his property that's incredible. Tell me about one of them that you want me yeah. to take back to the United States with me. Well, 
it's technically hugely illegal. <laughs> well, I, I work it's, it out. I, I have a badge, it's so part, I'll, it's part I'll of the, it the Heritage Resource <laughs> Association yeah. thing. But these are stones that were made on our property by Homo erectus before Homo sapiens, even from two million years ago, maybe even so a bit more. So these are what you would call humans, though, right? Or are they humans? So okay. close oh, to us. Okay, I got yeah, you. Yeah, so close to us, but before completely modern man. I got you. Okay. These smaller tools here mm -hmm. are also off the property on this side. Oh, wow. Okay. And those are much more modern man. So smaller, equally effective. Mm -hmm. These were for slaughtering carcasses. Oh, so they drive off lions and mm -hmm. all of that. They'd use these to cut into bits that even the teeth of the lions were unable to access. They were not for killing animals, they were for slaughtering them. Mm -hmm. And they'd make them on site, they'd be very sharp around the edge. They'd slaughter the animal, get the resources, break open the skull and the bones, and, and just survive that way. The, the square-ended ones are called cleavers. These ones that curve in like this are called picks. And the normal one is a teardrop shape that is that is the standard. So the best is probably 250,000 years old. Yeah, wow. You had people in America for the first time 17,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So these are. Why did they try to sell us that Columbus discovered America? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just the kidding. first white guy <laughs> to see people that have yeah. lived there forever. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> ridiculous. But anyway, that I'm was okay. in the books when I was I'm, going to school. I'm actually yeah. reading a book at the moment called, you know, uh, The Discovery of Humanity. Uh -huh. And they make exactly that point. How can you think just because a guy from Europe goes yeah. over exactly. and yeah. sees yeah. an existent culture yeah. that he's discovered? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, we had people on this property. These are in the vineyards, the Hamilton Russell vineyards. These are other people's properties. Mm -hmm. I found all these drawers are from this property. All those ones out there are less well-made ones. But these were made um, based on site out of quartzitic sandstone, chipped like this. They were incredibly sharp on the edges they were made and they would just get to the carpet oh, wow. bits like that. Mm -hmm. So if there's one you want to take no, back, uh, you pick one for me. And I'll I like it. this one. This is okay. beautifully shaped. Okay. And it's from a vineyard called, it's a Chardonnay vineyard called Froxmoor. Mm -hmm. And I found that in 2018. Well, I would be happy and to accept you that. Can, yes. You can see all the little workings mm -hmm. around the edge, like that. Now, did you and find this in this, this was in similar, in this condition? Like this on the surface. Wow. As Look. if it was dropped the day yeah. before. Wow. Our soils have been there for millions of years mm -hmm. and literally they would have killed an animal or driven some lions off an animal mm -hmm. made this out of something slaughtered the animal and then left the stone there so, so i wish you guys could see this on a, i know we're on an audio podcast but this is a beautiful piece of work and i thank you very much for this precious stone and i will hold on to it and i will try to tell a very similar story how many years ago we thinking maybe that, that could be a million and a half to a million three. and a half it could do anything three. from 250 million uh, sorry thousand 250,000 to a million and a half wow. years ago. wonderful so it is ancient yeah and hopefully, hopefully <laughs> i'll get to the airport with it but i have a bag you will so no one will even okay. know